Welcome to New York's Finest, Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. The mission of this podcast is to explore the life and experiences of those who at one time held a front row ticket to the greatest show on earth, policing the streets of New York City. This show hosts a wide variety of guests from all walks of life and professions, but remains centered around introducing retired members of the NYPD to our audience while having real unfiltered discussions. Please tune in each week and like and subscribe to hear true crime stories and opinions on past and present events like you've never heard them before. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to New York's Finest Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. I got a good friend with me today, Michael J. Alcazar. And of course, we got Eric Dim, as usual, with us. Everybody probably knows Mike. He's all over the news. He's an adjunct professor at John Jay. You've seen him on CBS, NBC, Fox, News Nation, Newsmax. I don't think there's a news station that I haven't seen Mike weighing in on on police events and you know and and mike i i gotta applaud you man it's it's not a great time to be going on the news putting your face out there but you've been doing it you're out on the news every day so i applaud you welcome to the show thank you for coming on my friend thank you gents mike welcome pleasure to have you thank you eric so mike you, you had an extensive career you retired nypd detective right uh can you just walk us through where you grew up why you became a cop Sure. Um, it's not what you're going to think, but um, uh, I retired with 30 and a half years. Uh, I grew up in Woodside, Queens. Um, let's see. I went to uh, St. Mary's. I got to give a shout out to St. Mary's uh, Grammar School over there. Um, so by, back in the 80s, I didn't have any hobbies, but I did have a girlfriend. So while I was in college, you know, end up getting her pregnant. And a buddy of mine says, listen, you got to you got to get a job. You got to get a job that will give good benefits. Right. So he hands me an application for the NYPD. Never thought of it. Never dreamed of it. I'm the one and only police officer in my family. But, uh, you know, I wanted to do the right thing, take care of my family. So I took the test. And back then uh, I took the test in 88. Uh, I only took one exam, as you know, and I think we'll do that in discussion a lot of cops take the exam several times, especially back in our days. You know, now maybe not, but back in our days, because they wanted to make sure they get into the class, right? I only took one. And I think from 88, I got processed so fast. I think, you know, I was uh, like a year and I was in the academy class in um, 89. Um, it's been a good career. I dropped out of college. We're going to talk about that. So I dropped out of college. I was going to Baruch College. I dropped out. I had about three years to become a police officer and take care of my new family. Um, my career, I landed in, uh, I did my field training in Queens. Uh, we were FTU 17. So we bounced around to 109, to 111, to 112, to 102, to 106. Pretty nice areas. Uh, and then my first command was the 8-3 precinct in Bushwick. I got jammed up over there. You could, we could talk about that later. And I got an administrative transfer to the 7-7 precinct. And the guys in the 8-3, you know, they were asking. There was four of us that got jammed up. Uh, I went to the 7-7. My partner went to the 7-5. And two partners that kept together, they went to the 9-0. And they said, wow, they really, 
they really screwed my call because you know a 77 back then was a real shithole i mean i mean not now not now forget about it it's like all the hipsters live there my brother lives there he loves it um i did i did about 10 years in the 77 so most of my patrol time was in brooklyn north uh after that uh i did brooklyn north task force for about two years my former commanding officer I'm sorry, my former lieutenant in A3 became the commanding officer of Brooklyn North Task Force. And uh, he always liked me, so he pulled me over there. And um, I did that for a couple of years. And then I did, uh, and then I did a temporary assignment to Vice. As you know, Vice is uh, very hard to get into. And I had a friend that made a phone call. I got in there temporarily. Uh, I was only supposed to be there six months and I was going to go back to patrol no meal. Uh, while I was there, 9-11 happens. And uh, as you guys know, everything froze. There was no movement, right? So six months became a year, became 18 months. And you do 18 months investigative time, they have to promote you. So I ended up doing undercover work for five years. And after five years, believe it or not, I kind of got tired of being an undercover. And I went to the detective squad. I went to the 13th precinct. I was supposed to go to the 6th. But I got Shanghai to the 13th precinct. Uh, I did that for a little bit. And I was always a midnight guy. When I was in Task Force, I loved midnights. When I was in the 7-7, I loved midnights. So plus, you know, we had the kids and it really worked for me. You sacrifice your body a little bit working midnights, but it really helped with babysitting because uh, I would pick up the kids from school. I think my kids growing up never even knew I worked because I was always there picking them up and taking care of them and until, you know, until I had to go to work. And then I went to, from the squad, I went to Nightwatch, which I loved. Uh, Nightwatch, Nightwatch is great. I felt like a cop again, because you're starting all investigation on the onset when it first happens, right? And the best part is you hand off the paperwork to the, the squad, the concerned squad. So I, I really love that. Uh, and from there, I had a buddy that became the commanding officer of the Detective Bureau training unit. Uh, I think I had about, at this time, I think I had about probably 18 years. So I was thinking about retiring anyway. I said, ah, you know, I'll do the training. I've never done it. Uh, I've never taught nothing. I wasn't at John Jay yet. And I never had, I never had weekends off. My friend goes, yo, I'll give you weekends off. It's going to be day tours, weekends off, you know? So I did that. I did that. I did that for a while. And from training, I followed my boss. He went to chief of detectives. So I went to chief of detectives. Oh, I got to go backtrack. So while I was in Nightwatch, uh, my sergeant, Vinnie Goff, I don't know if you guys know him. God rest his soul. He's since passed. But Vinnie Goff asked me if I wanted to put in an application for hostage, for hostage negotiations. I did because I was on midnights and they needed negotiators on the midnights. I, know, I, I never knew what happened with that paperwork until I was a chief of these. So I'm a chief of these and Jack Cambria is a lieutenant over there. He goes, Mike, are you still interested in going into hostage? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he interviewed me. Um, and it, it's good because Jack Cambria, if you guys know the gentleman, he doesn't just pick you up because you work at chief of these. You know, he actually I had to go through the interview with him. I had to tell him why I want to be a negotiator. He also wanted to for me to recall like a traumatic event and how I dealt with it so that he can see that you can deal with with people that are having stress and how you would deal with them. And I went through that course. Um, 
So I, I don't know if most people know this, but hostage negotiations at the NYPD, they only keep a roster of 100 detectives, right? Out of 34,000 cops, it's 100 detectives. Um, and it's not like a steady gig. You're not like just hostage, right? So I stayed at Chief of D's. And then eventually when I went back to training, I stayed uh, in training. And then you would, just be, you would just be called for a hostage job. So you would give your schedule to Chief of D's and, uh, and they'll know that Mike's in Brooklyn today or Mike's in Manhattan today. And then they'll notify you when a hostage job comes over. Uh, so from chief of detectives, I went back to training. Now I'm just basically, you know, I, I never thought I'd stay past 20, but now I am past 20. And um, I was in training for a while there. Uh, I, I enjoyed that because uh, I did my patrol time. I did, I've done my arrests. I don't have quite the CCRB record that Eric has. I, I thought I was bad. I was like, wow, look at this record. Um, uh, people are going to Google that now. But, yeah, you'll see. I, 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 a, I don't know if you see my plaque, but the guys, <laughs> um, they put out my plaque. It says CCRB is 115 allegations. Wow. That, that, that's impressive. <laughs> so now, now, I don't know if guys, if, if I mean, most of the guys probably watching are cops anyway, but for the civilians, if you get a lot of CCRBs, it's because you're an active police officer. You're an active boss and you're in an active unit. And most of the time, that's when I got it. When I was on patrol in the 7-7, when I was in undercover, you know, this is when I get the allegation. And that's just CCRBs. They don't even know about like the IAB complaint and all that nonsense, you know, that people just, you know, you know, lodge against you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I pretty much finished off my career. I did a stint. I, I got to say this. I did a stint in EEO. So my boss that was in uh, training, he, he went to EEO. Um, I was already, I forgot, I was already a second grader. And he goes, dude, come to EEO. I'll get you first grade. He goes, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how much time I had. I probably had like 25 years. So I said, all right. So I go over there. This is how much I hated EEO. You're there for like a three month, you know, like a loner thing. Right. So three months. My first month, I told them, hey, I don't want to do this. I want to go back. I, I can't do this because equal em employment opportunity for the people who know it's just uh, it's, of course, uh, investigating allegations of uh, uh, racial discrimination. Uh, you know, uh, it, all the protected classes uh, that, you know, that make these complaints. But what I realized quickly probably like in my first two weeks, most of these people making these allegations are just making it up. Uh, they're lying and I hated it. I hated it and I can't even tell them they're lying because every every investigation I did a year was recorded. The phone call was recorded. Every interview was recorded. It just wasn't for me. I, 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 did, it, you know, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. So I told him I want to get out of there. He still kept me for three months. And I told him, listen, I want to leave. Two weeks, I told him I want to leave. He still, well, you still got to do it three months. So he kept me there for three months and I did a couple of cases and then I went back to training and from training, that's where I retired. Uh, and that's, that's the gist of it. Oh, cause you guys were both lieutenants. The reason I stayed so long is because I had a great lieutenant in training, uh, Ralph Salento. I don't know if you guys ever worked with Ralph, but, uh, I told him once you leave, you know, that's it. And he left and that was it. That was when I retired. Awesome. I mean, that's long, I'm career, sorry. Dude. It's so winded. Long story. No, no, dude. You, you had a great career. I mean, you had a long career. It's awesome. I'm just going to go get some popcorn real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I tell the same story to my students at John Jay. 
They've heard it 10 million times. I got a question. So since we want to get into talk about hiring practices, uh, you said that you had you that you had dropped out or you didn't go to college. So what hiring standards did, did you get into the police department based on at that time? Um, you were just all you needed to do to have was a high school degree or a GED. That was it. So what that year was it? That was in 1989. And, and before, I don't know when, I don't remember when they required the, the credits. Uh, I don't remember when they implemented that. So at this time, I just want to reiterate, 1989, you did not yep. have, the requirements were not 60 college credits or two years military, which they are now. So at the time it was a high school diploma or a GED, right? Yes. And then with entrance, was there anything else that you need to coincide with a GED? Is it just a high school diploma? Is it, it just, if, if you have a GED, do you need anything else or it's just one or the other? I think, I believe, I mean, don't call me. I, I believe it's one or the other. Gotcha. All right. No, it's interesting to compare. This is 1989 versus present day for the NYPD uh, criteria to get into the police department entry level. That's interesting. Right. Yep. Mike, what would you say your uh, your ethos is about policing? Like, you know, like what would you say, like if you had to give advice, like what to like a, a younger self, if you were telling your younger self or, or a younger man in, in policing? And I know not right at the time, but I'm just saying, like, if you as you look back on your career, like what would you say your ethos was like, you you know, I could tell you're a passionate guy. You still love the police department, you still love the NYPD. Like, what do you, what, what would you, what, what, what would you say is like, how did you approach uh, the the job and, and, and what did you bring with you through every assignment? Yeah. I mean, what I would tell my younger self is like what I tell my students now going, I'm, I've had hundreds of students get on the job. What I tell them is like, if I had to do it over again, if I had to do it over again, I would make boss. You have to make boss. Right. I had no idea I was going to do 30 years. What a waste of time. You know, I should have been uh, at least a lieutenant like you guys, you know. Um, so I always tell my students now that you guys are smart kids. You're going into the academy. Your your overtime. It's only your salary right now counting towards your pension. Your overtime is not going to count. Uh, you have to do 25 years to collect your full pension. You have to make supervisor. You got to take the test. Uh, don't be scared to do it. And, and that's what I would tell myself. Take the test. I, I took the test. I didn't take it seriously, but I took it. You know, I just I just didn't give it the time and effort that that my friends did, like you guys did. And it does take a lot of effort. You know, people think it's like a, like probably it's so easy. No, you have to put a lot of time to study to become a, a boss in the NYPD. And I just didn't do it. I think and I tell my students this. I think I fell in love with patrol. Right. And I tell them this now, don't fall in love with patrol. It's fun. I mean, I don't know. If I should catch that right now. Maybe they're not having so much fun right now in patrol. But when I was in patrol, <laughs> I had a great time. And then, you know, I never aspired to be a detective. Then I became a detective. I had a great time being a detective. My career, I shouldn't say it wasn't a waste of time. It was a waste of time because I didn't make boss. Right. But uh, I did have a good career. I did have a lot of fun. So that's what I would give myself, myself the advice just to take the exam and become a boss. It's a good job. It is a good career. Uh, hopefully it's a good career for the, our young officers now, but, um, you know, it's, we, we have to see. Well, outstanding. I'll say you took us through your career, which is very detailed, 
a lot of great information about the latter part of your career and how you got to the point that you decided to stay past your 20-year retirement. And you excelled and you stayed till 30 years on the job. And I always think that there's no, there's, there should be no resentment. I mean, there's a lot of leadership that you, you get when you're doing investigations. I always said when you're a detective and you're doing investigations, you're a leader because you have to lead that case so that goes in the right direction. So I definitely think detectives sometimes just don't get enough credit in that direction. I myself, I, I, I probably think the same thing about John. I decided to take the route to become a supervisor on this job because I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be a mentor, but I also knew that I didn't have just like you, I didn't have any family on the job. So I said to myself, I have to take these tests. I'm not going to move up with nepotism. I saw detectives throughout their career, not get promoted, not get to, uh, not get to major case because they didn't have the right connections. Unfortunately, they were slighted by nepotism. So that's why I went that route. But I mean, clearly you were doing a great job of investigation. So that's my question. Did you find, because John and I had done a podcast about diversity and about discrimination. And we totally debunked that Asians, unfortunately, take the most amount of time on the job to get promoted at the executive rank. Did you find that as a detective, being an, uh, an Asian in the NYPD, did that hold you back from getting promoted? Did we feel that during, during your area, during your era on the job? And did you get held back by nepotism as well? Uh, yeah, personally, I didn't, I didn't feel that. Um, the job's been great. Uh, there was lots of detectives along with me that didn't get promoted. Uh, I was very happy to get promoted to second grade. Uh, it did take a little bit of time. But uh, no, personally, I, I didn't feel that way. Uh, honestly, it didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was discriminated against. I didn't feel like it took forever. I think I was afforded a lot of opportunities. I'm very lucky, um, you know, coming onto the job. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any hooks. You know, when you stay on as long as I did, you eventually make connections. And there are people, good people that will look out for you because they remember you. So, yes, I did have a lot of people that helped me out through my career. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't feel that. I know some people do, but I, I did not feel that at all no it's great i appreciate I mean, that no no that's that's your perspective and that's what we want we want we just want everyone's view and everybody's perspective we all perceive jobs differently all right we me and you could have had almost a similar career and i might have perceived it totally different and that's what we're just trying to do get everybody's vision and their their perspective on the job in here um yeah. like you've been through i mean three decades of policing right you came into yeah. new york city it was it was probably <laughs> one of the worst times in New York City. And yeah. you police through one of the, the the times with the lowest crime in New York City where it became the, the best version of itself. And then yeah. you actually wind up retiring. And we're seeing a lot of people in New York City are saying that the city's changing, policing's changing. I mean, policing has changed from the moment you stepped in in 1989. That's without a doubt. We're ever evolving, you know. What... um. Could you just take us through those your your three basic eras of policing and what yeah. do you believe is the what do you believe is the most effective form of policing and what was the best version of the NYPD that you were in? Yeah. Uh well I'll answer that first. The best form of the NYPD that I patrolled that I worked in was when when Bratton was the PC, when Kelly was the PC. I know. I know Kelly 
you know, a lot of police officers don't like him because he micromanaged everything. But I thought he did a good job. Him started off with Brian, right, with broken windows theory. I'm a big proponent of broken windows theory. People don't like that. It's like a bad word. But I, I, I firmly believe that, I mean, as a kid officer, I had no idea what broken theory, windows theory was. I didn't know what we were doing was working, you know, summonsing people for urinating, getting rid of the squeegee guys and just solving all these street crimes, right? Uh, prostitution when I was advised. I had no idea what I was doing, but it absolutely worked. It cleaned up New York City. It became the Disneyland that we all know now, that we love now. Times Square. I mean, you could post pictures with Mickey Mouse and and all these characters. You know, me growing up, if you ever seen the show The Deuce, that's what it was like. Prostitution, drugs, muggings, strip clubs. It was like completely different growing up and seeing that and seeing it now. Um, and that being said, I think a lot of people that criticize p police officers now are probably not even real New Yorkers, right? And I hate to say that, but they're transplanted from wherever they came from, Kansas, L.A. And now, of course, they're going to criticize us, right? Because maybe, maybe yeah, you, during like the 2000s, maybe we could have tailored our policing strategies a little bit better. Maybe we couldn't, we didn't have to be that aggressive. But, you know, that's what we knew. That's what worked, right? We got crime so far down i'm working in the 77 just in the 77 i believe one year we had like 88 homicides that's that's insane right that's insane we were and i don't know if people want to hear this but we had a homicide pool when we were in patrol we broke down the precinct we just tried to figure it out each uh football sector and we took a piece of it and we put money into it and then we're gonna whoever got the first homicide if handed it landed in their you know whatever area of the precinct that they won the money. That's how prevalent prevalent uh, homicides were. It was just insane. And and you guys know, 77 is a sliver of Brooklyn. You know, 88, 86 homicides is just insane. So, yeah, as, as a rookie police officer, when I first came in, everyone says it's not as, right now, it's not as bad. I guess if we had cell phones back then, it probably would look worse, right? Because everything that happened back then was high crime. We had the Crown Heights riots, uh, uh, everything. I mean, we were going to detail after detail. and uh, But it didn't seem as bad. Even though it was high crime, it didn't seem as bad because there was no social media. It was just the regular news. And then you had to wait to get home to see that. I think everything's magnified now because of everything we see on Instagram, TikTok, and, you know, and all the news coverage. Um, so, yeah, through through my rookie years, again, I did 10 years like in the 77 and I see the change. I saw the change happening. Uh, so from when I came on 89 to probably 2000, you know, it changed. And then we got Kelly and he just basically took over what Bratton started. Bratton was great for morale. Uh, you know, he, he was the first one, he was a transit chief, first one to give us, you know, semi-automatic weapons. When I came on, I had a revolver and, and speed loaders. Again, I didn't know that, like, I was, you know, not as equipped as the bad guy. Bratton saw that. He had the foresight. He gave us that. And, of course, everyone has that now. Um, and then Kelly took over. Uh, right? Am I missing something? I mean, Safer was in the mix over there. 
right? Yeah. But uh, Kelly, Kelly, you know, he with with Bloomberg, he did. He had a long run of become of being the police commissioner, and I think he, I think he did a great job um, as a police commissioner. Uh, besides, like the the you know the politics in, in policing, you know, I, I'm not privy to that. I'm just a lowly cop or maybe a detective at the time, but um, but I thought he did a good job cleaning up the city, and then. You know, Bloomberg continued and he kept Kelly on. That was great. Um, and then we had this shit show, de Blasio. He just, what a disaster this guy was. And everyone said, oh, he did a good job. He was doing good. No, he was riding on the coattails of the previous administration. And he slowly eroded it uh, with his policies and his um, pandering, right? Uh, and you see, when he got reelected again, he had a mix of different police commissioners, some good, some great. Uh, I, I shouldn't say great. None of them were great. Some good. Uh, I personally like uh, Commissioner O'Neill, even though that might be a controversial thing because of the Pantaleo firing. Uh, I didn't agree with that. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to name names, but there were some pretty bad police commissioners towards the end that just totally pandered to de Blasio. This guy is not a doesn't know how to run a city. He doesn't know how to run a police department. I know he was the mayor, but, you know, I, I always say if I was police commissioner, I, I would have done it my way. He had, he would have to fire me because this, I mean, these guys, where are they now? Right. They kiss this guy's butt. And where are they now? They're nobodies now. They're, they're like the black sheep of policing. Um, you know, these guys kneeling down for BLM. I know Eric, you're very passionate about that. I totally agree with you kneeling down right and, and you're a comstat telling guys to put hands on guys you just knelt down what are you talking about you're sending mixed messages and i always thought that the cops are confused the, the, the leadership just was not there they're all basically setting up their next career i think we all know that they were just setting up their next career so Absolutely. i hope they're happy with their career because they definitely um lost the trust of the good hardworking police officers of the NYPD. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I had hopes that uh, Adams would do a good job. I mean, I know it's only his first year, but he did, he was given a shit sandwich, you know, from de Blasio. So, I mean, people were very critical of him from the beginning. And, I'm, I, you know, we're, we're all very well aware of his uh, history with NYPD. Um, he was actually a I remember as a rookie in the 77, uh, he was a desk officer. That was my one and only interaction with him, uh, processing an arrest. And, I, you know, I heard all about him and 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 his association. And uh, but that was my one and only interaction with him. He was actually like a regular desk lieutenant, very professional, uh, nothing negative. So that was it. I can't really comment because that was it. That was it. That was my one interaction with him. Uh, yeah, I mean, now now, it, now it's the disaster that it is because of defund the police. I think it set us back. Everyone says it set us back 10 years. I hope it, does, I hope it didn't set us back 10 years, but it, it, it definitely set us back, right? Uh, uh, we've, uh, the bail reform has empowered bad guys and criminals. It, it's like a joke there. You know, the punishment uh, is in swift, so they don't equate it with the crime. They go run home and tell their other perp buddies that they just got released so you know you know daylight robberies daylight rapes uh, and shoplifting is nothing they'll just do that 
for nothing assaults. It's, 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 it makes me sad because in my 30 years, I saw it go from bad to really good. Like it was great. And then it just slowly came down. I think people just forget the hard work that NYPD did to, to make the city safer. And, you know, again, I blame it all on the people that are transplanted New Yorkers. You know, they're spoiled. They came into paradise and now they're going to Monday morning quarterback the police officers. And why are we so aggressive and why are we doing car stops and why are we harassing that guy that's urinating? You know, but they don't know what all the work that we did to make the city safe. And now they know. Now they know. Now they see it. And now they're probably having. Yeah, I know they're having their doubts now. So it's sad. It makes me sad. It makes me sad that it's it is what it is now. So. Mike, I like to uh, circle back because one point that I want to get out to the public, the mission of this podcast is to see the truth. And what we want people to understand, particularly John and I, is that we're here to support the police and we want the police to strive. We're not here to be against the NYPD. We want the NYPD to strive as well. So a lot of times we're picking apart the, the faults, the atrocities, and the bad leadership of the NYPD. And what you said is great. We're, I'm actually happy to hear that you had a great experience and that you didn't feel that nepotism was holding you back and that you didn't feel that the color of your skin and that you being an Asian American was not holding you back from promotion because that was at that time. And I remember when I got on the police department, John as well, we talked about this. We love the job. I never saw those type of politics. We didn't feel that. We didn't feel the identity politics, but towards the latter part of de Blasio's uh, mayoral term, we really started to feel the pressure of that in the NYPD and especially going to uh, mayor Adams, uh, his term as mayor in transition as well. And you can see, and it, there was even a, a memo within the police department that there was a push for di diversity and those underrepresented would be promoted faster based on the needs to fill those roles. But that's where John and I debunked it because the underrepresented was the Asian American, but that's what we weren't seeing. They weren't filling the diversity. It was just becoming filling black and brown. So I'm happy to hear that you had a great experience. That's what we want to hear. We want to get it back to that. That's the mission of this podcast is to get people like you and me and John so that we can stand together and say, hey, this was a great job. It was a great profession. We need to get back to that. That's the point. So, Mike, I really appreciate that you're saying that and that you had a great experience. I do believe that if you stayed on post-George Floyd, that you would find that you would probably want to retire as fast as possible because in that short amount of time, it was a complete 180 than the 30 years you experienced. And I don't think it would be enjoyable anymore, unfortunately. And I'm sure yeah. you're seeing that right now. I, I'm assuming you probably speak to your students that go into the academy. Speaking of the students that you have, after their experience in the academy, what's the response that they're coming back to you? What have you learned from this new academy compared to when you went on the police department? Well, I spoke to a couple of my students and a couple of my, we had cadets and it's funny they're they're already becoming jaded, you know, uh, not so much the academy, but now that they're police officers, right? These, these poor kids are experiencing things that, that I didn't experience, you know, like, uh, I mean, sometimes, but not like they are, right? They go to jobs, bricks are being thrown at them, bottles are being thrown at them. I mean, it happened in the Crown Heights rides for me, but not like these guys. These guys are getting it on the daily. Uh, I have a couple of uh, students already got into shootings. 
right? I did 30 years. I mean, I pulled out my gun a million times. I never got into a shooting. These poor kids are getting into shootings. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, this is this is not what I expected or wanted for them, you know? I mean, when I was teaching them, it was great. It was still great, right? It was still a great job. Uh, I and, and I would never tell them to do it uh, if I didn't believe in it. Now it's a little bit different. You know, a lot of my students don't want to do it anymore, and I understand it. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're experiencing a lot of crime, a lot of uh, uh, hostility from the community. And it's sad. It's sad because I know they were idealistic when they were in my class. Uh, and I'm telling them all these great stories that happened to me. And here it is. They're getting a, it's a disaster for them. So it's it's very sad. Not so terrible. I mean, like I, I think you hit the nail on the head that Blasio was the, was the it was the downfall of not only the NYPD of New York City. Hundred percent. I didn't, you know, and for the first half of my career, I, I had Kelly Bloomberg, you know, we were Bloomberg cops, me and Eric were impact cops. You know, we, we were trained on the broken windows theory of policing, like, yeah. you know, and we kind of, I kind of knew what it was because I had it deployed on me as a, as a youth. So did Eric. And, and then when I came into the police department, I mean, New York city was already the best version of itself. Yeah. You know what I mean, so I already knew what New York was and I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, I don't think that's really a knock. You know, I meet people all the time. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm like, no, where are you really from? No, I'm from, well, I'm from Ohio, but I live in Brooklyn. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you're not from Brooklyn where I'm right. from. Like, you know, <laughs> you, know yeah. you, you don't know what this city has to offer. And even and even as, you know, de Blasio came in, it was really an anti, it was like, who hates the cops more? That whole mayoral run. The whole run up was who hates the NYPD more? That's who yeah. needs to be the police. I mean, and really, New York City was a safe city. And like, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, I thought that was brilliant when you said that it eroded under him. That's what he did. He pulled it. He changed our policies. He changed our policies. He, he took away the minor crimes, the minor infractions to the point where we're at that even our justice system is broken, you know, through politics. And I, I didn't realize it. Like, I, I, I keep I, I, I'm a, I think I told Erica, but I never realized how politically connected we were like how yeah. under i really thought we were a separate entity and it didn't matter i really did i i i guess i was just dumb and i just didn't know any better and i was like no we're the police everybody wants crime down any any mayor on any side is going to want that but he didn't want it and he really did he brought in identity politics in the police department and i do believe when you bring in identity politics anywhere it has the effect is division and tribalism in every group you know, every group is like, well, what, what the hell is it? What about me? Why are you saying that about me? Why, what, you know, and, and it really divides the, the police. Um, and like you said, everyone's carrying guns now because of, you know, people are brazen now. So these kids are getting gun arrest first day out. Oh, I went to a domestic and a gun fell out of the kid's pocket. Like, yeah. it didn't happen for years. You know what I mean? Like, people were afraid to carry guns. Yeah. So I appreciate you highlighting that. I mean, I thought you gave an excellent, excellent uh, breakdown of that. Whole, that and, whole and, and sadly, you know, de Blasio and his commissioners, they thought they were doing the right thing, but they, they thought they were doing the right thing for the black and brown community. But that's actually who he hurt. You know, he hurt those communities. You know, I have friends that live in Brownsville. You know, they they don't let their kids play outside. They can't go to the bodega. They're afraid they're going to be recruited by gangs. They're afraid they're going to get shot. This is the reality. And those people want police officers there. They, they love their police officers. 
you know, they, they want to be safe. Now it's not safe. It's not safe. I'm glad you said that because I was feeling that during the, the end, the tenure of my career at the, at the end, the last year specifically, I mean, here I was, I had 18 years on the job and I, and now I'm sitting, I have eight sets of charges for the civilian complaint review board sitting on my desk. And I tell John, I've said this so many times offline. I said this on the podcast, but I literally sat in my office, looked at this pile. And I said, just like you, John, I, I, it took me that long to realize. I said, how did I get here? I always thought, no matter what the politics were, all this infighting, that maybe, maybe I guess I was foolish in a way, but I, never, I said, there's no way that the streets are going to want Eric Dim off these streets because Eric Dim wants to help the community by putting the best men and women under me. I had the best teams. These guys were trained. I wanted to be out there with them to keep training them, to guide them, to mentor them. At the same time, we were saving lives. And I said to myself, there's no way. No matter what happens, even with the civilian complaints, they're going to want me out there. I, I was even foolish to believe that the community would come up and say, listen, we need this guy. We need his teams. But that didn't happen. I sat in my office. I had a pile. I had a stack of charges from the civilian complaint review board. And I knew it was time to go. And I said, wow, how did I get here? But the identity politics penetrated the New York City Police Department. And it was over. And I knew. And I was content with it that it was time to go. Because I could no longer be effective to the teams to do the intrusive police work. It, it was impossible. John and I talk about it all the time. There's no way I would have survived. And the kids coming up now, they can't do the police work that we did. It's impossible. It's impossible. And exactly, they're hurting the black and brown community. They can't even help them. They can't give them what they need, what what is actually provided. I mean, this mirage to believe that hugs and kisses and ice cream is what's going to be effective. I think... John, you had put out a tweet or someone else. It, it's something old about the, uh, the stop and kiss program. I mean, it's a joke, but it's funny. But it, that's that's what it came to. The actual effective police work, they didn't want it. it it's, it's really sad. It's tragic. Mike, I, I, your 30 years of service, I mean, is, is marked it, it, with uh, a spirit of the core. I mean, you did a great job, an effective detective. That's what we need. We need more men and women. But who's going to stay on the job 30 years to become what you became? No one. I told no, you I hey, 10 years no, on the job. It's time to go. Yeah, I don't see that happening. I know the dinosaurs are extinct. It's never going to, I don't think it's going to happen again. Uh, absolutely not. So, so at what point did you decide that? I know you said that you came on the job and that at that point you had a GED. So, at what point did you decide that to excel, educate yourself? And, and get yourself a degree and, and go on to becoming a professor yourself. Yeah. So when I was in Nightwatch, Nightwatch, so now I had the time to go to school, you know, and it wasn't online. You actually had to go to school in the daytime. So uh, I worked in Manhattan. So I enrolled at John Jay. Uh, you know, I enjoy uh, and I, I, I didn't have my bachelor's. So I enrolled in my the, the four free college, five free colleges. If you're not a supervisor. Uh, with the John Jay program. I owe John Jay a lot. So I did that. My mom, God rest her soul, always wanted me to get a degree. That was very important, you know, very traditional Filipino thing. You know, that's like a sign of success. So I, I had like 18 years. I said, you know, what? I, I, I got to do this. You know, I'm almost done. I might as well do this. I was thinking of like for my, my next career. 
so I did that. I got my degree. Um, and then I continued. I started taking the grad courses, you know, that was also free for John Jay, you know. Um, so I took my grad courses and then my professor, one of my professors for my graduate courses, uh, Mackie Haberfeld. I don't know if you guys know her. She's amazing, uh, a big supporter of the police. Uh, she loves us. She's former Israeli police, so she's great. So she was the chair of law and uh, police science and criminal administration, criminal justice administration. So when, when, when you're taking these, I always tell my kids, when you're taking graduate courses, it's always presentations. You're doing presentations for your professor, for your class. And um, she took a liking to me. She she and she goes, "Would you like to teach a class?" And I'm like, uh, "Yeah, I mean, I train detectives. I mean, I look up blank stairs all day. So yeah, I could absolutely do this." And you know, you can never teach it. That's probably I love training detectives, but man, they don't want to hear anything from you. You know, you have to give them look at blank stairs all day. Yeah. And, 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 oh, that's that's the good one. Sometimes they just give you, you know, they talk back to you, but uh you have to definitely deal it deal with detectives with a lot of humor. I think I did that. Even teaching EEO, you handle it with a little bit of humor, and that's how you get them to pay attention, right? I, I don't need to like profess to them everything they gotta do. But anyway, uh yeah, so Mackie offered me a class. She goes, When do you think? And she goes, Oh, maybe like in six months, you know. And you know, a week later, she goes, would you like to teach a class this semester? Like a week later, you know, and, uh, and <laughs> I, I did. Six months. <laughs> yeah, that was in, uh, yeah, that was in 2012. So I've been teaching ever since. Uh, I didn't know I'd love it that much. I tell my students all the time, I love this. I love doing this, you know. I love doing this. I love this more than policing because I, I was in training. So I love this more, I told them. Um, I have a couple of I have a couple of cop friends that wanted to teach, and their first question was, "How much does it pay?" I said, "Well, your pay is the NYPD. You're gonna have to do this because you're gonna want to do this, right? You're not gonna. It's not. They don't pay that much, right? right. And it's gonna be uh, not to your schedule, it's to their schedule, right? So I had a couple of friends that got on and did, uh, at John Jay. A lot of them did not like teaching. You know, they're saying that the the kids are stupid. I said, "Well, then don't do it. No one's making you do this." You know, you should want to do this. Right. And I tell that to my kids. And it's not just cop professors. You know, John Jay, if people don't know, John Jay is divided into practitioners, us and the PhDs that, you know, studied 10 million years to get their PhDs. And a lot of them are great, but they hate us because we are the draw. The kids love us. They want to talk to you. John, to you, Eric, to me about our experience. They love it because at the time they wanted to be police officers. They don't want to hear from some sociologists that studied crackheads and, and filmed them because we have one of those. I won't name names, but nobody wants to take his class, you know, and some of these professors, they just don't have, they don't have the passion, you know, uh, I, I love it. I love it. I have a passion for it. I know my students love it. I think they, you know, my reviews are pretty good uh, and they can see, right. I talk to them. Like I talk to my kids to, you know, when my youngest one was going through college and the stress of it, I tell them, listen, calm down. Everything's going to work out. You know, I'm not here to hurt you. Right. Uh, oh, and about politics. Right. I never talk politics. In fact, when I'm teaching policing, they don't even know if I'm pro-police or anti-police because I 
do it from both sides. And I always ask them too, like, do some of your professors talk politics with you? And inevitably, always, there is somebody that talks politics. I said, well, they're doing you a disservice because they shouldn't be leading you how you're going to think, how you're going to uh, uh, vote, right? And they do. They definitely, some professors push that. If you ask my students now, they have no idea which way I lean. They, they don't know if I'm Republican or de de Democrat, have no idea. And I think that's, that's what you should, you know, that's the right way to teach these young people. You know, you shouldn't influence them. I mean, I kind of influenced them into becoming police officers because I made it sound so great and it was great for me, you know, so hopefully they're having a good time. Now, hopefully most of them listen to me and their bosses now, you know, because uh, I mean, 2012, there's got to be a, a couple lieutenants and captains in there now. Right. So hopefully. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years. You got captains. A hundred percent. You definitely got captains. Yeah. 10 years, 11 years. I, I would I if I had to go back I would study sooner I was having a good time too like you yeah I was I was in crime I was running around I loved it and yeah Eric yeah we me. fell in love with it right <laughs> I loved it I really did it was a totally different job I, I I hate what I'm hearing now that people are miserable um so something that you posted the other day I shared and and it kind of went viral on your LinkedIn and and you know it's funny that you teach right like you teach you're in college you're teaching these kids to become cops. Um, and you know, the, and you know, I think all three of us have the same contention around the Tyree Nichols, uh, event. I heard you on the news a million times speaking about, it. I listened to what you said and it was, it was almost identical to what me and Eric was saying too, is that, you know, we believe that the, the, those hires should have never happened. They were, they were under lower standards. Like, and you know, like Eric made, made a few, you know, he was, he did a couple of interviews as well, where he said, you know. I don't believe this is a stain on policing. I believe this is a stain on the administration of policing because I don't believe these people should have been hired, you know, and, and, you know, not, for whatever various reasons, lowering standards. So, so Mike, I, 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 I'm assuming we were all around the same head. It's the time the body cameras released it's a few days later and Mike sends this out on LinkedIn and I see it and I'm like, Oh, this is, this is perfect. Cause we're talking about standards. And he says, college, no college, question mark. What makes a good police officer is their upbringing. You're a representative of your people, your family. If you are raised with a strong moral compass and values, that is what you bring into policing. So I was like, wow. I was like, that's saying something. You know, I was like, that's truly saying something. So Mike, could you walk us through that statement? Yeah, I've been saying that for years with my students. Every student I've had, they've heard that statement. I, I may, it might be a little bit more flavor when I say it to them. It says, if you're a good person, if you got good values, right? And where do you get your values from? And I know I got a little bit of flack from this. I triggered some people. Where do you get your families from? You know, from your family, your church, your school, whatever clubs you belong to, right? And, 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 and I think that's what makes a good person. And a good person is what we need to be a good police officer. And I always tell them, if you were a piece of shit before you became a cop, guess what? You're still going to be a piece of shit when now you're a police officer. And I talk about corruption and how corruption will always be a part of policing because we're humans, right? We'll never be able to get rid of it entirely. Uh, and I hate I hate bad apples. I hate the term bad apples because that's a quick fix, right? Oh, yeah, we fix it. These five guys were bad apples. How do we know? How do we know Memphis Police Department failed their community, right? Because they hired them. They should be held accountable. That chief should step down. 
right? She's so happy that she fired these five guys, seven guys, whatever it is, right? She should be held accountable. It was her department that pushed these guys through. And when they didn't deserve it, they shouldn't have been police officers. They, they, they weren't, they were a gang, right? They were a gang. I hate, when I do the news, I hate calling them police officers, right? I, I call them five individuals if I don't want to call them purse, but five individuals. These guys do not represent police officers. And I said, and every, every, Police officer I know agrees with me. No one sees those guys as representative of us, of all the good work that we do, right? That's not what we do. And those guys were like mental midgets anyway. I mean, what, what you know, they're not thinking they're, they're, I could say all kinds of things, but uh, yeah, I tell that to my students. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I firmly believe that. Of course, I triggered some people that were academic. I always triggered the academics. They would say, oh, oh, what about this? What about that? And I'll, it's like, yeah, it's not a, and I actually put another post. It's not a blanket statement, you know? Um, I forgot what I said. Something about, deal, you know, whatever life deals you, you know, it's how you play your hand, right? You, it doesn't have to be the bad cards or the deltas. It's how you play your hand. It's about you, right? And I'm sorry, somebody commented, somebody got triggered, some Karen, she goes, she just didn't like that statement about like, what if you're, you know, raised in a, in a poor environment, people, people overcome that. I know a lot of good cops that came from a poor environment, right? Somewhere they got direction, somewhere they got uh, their values, somewhere they got their ethics. You know, it doesn't have to come from family. That's just an example, right? You could be surrounded by good people. So, um, and, and I think that's what makes a good cop, makes a great cop. You know, most of the cops uh, I came on the job with did not have college. So college doesn't necessarily make you a good cop. It might make you more educated. Uh, like in John Jay, we teach a lot of sociology and and why people commit crime it might make you understand uh, them better. I, I agree with that, but not necessarily. You know, I think our job, as you guys know, is more um, learning on the job. Right. The academy teaches you six months of whatever patrol guide stuff and law and, and tactics. And then a lot of it you learn when you get on the job. And who do you learn it from? You learn it from good supervisors. You learn it from good cops. You learn it from good senior cops. And I think that's the sad part. A lot of our talent, a lot of our senior cops are gone. And now. All they have are new police officers that might have a year or two or three ahead of them. And this is who they're learning from. So it's a little bit tougher for them because no one's telling these kids the right way. And I remember learning from old timers. You know, you would think the old timers would not want to teach you anything. I, I learned best from a lot of uh, old timers that, that tell you to calm down, relax. Uh, don't run right up there. You know, walk, listen to the wall, listen to the door right? Uh, all tactics and how to talk to people, right? Most of my CCRBs were, were from when I was a kid, right? Because, you know, I'm a young man and I did not know how to talk to people. I learned that as I got older. I learned that from senior cops, you know, how they finesse people, how they, how they de-escalate, right? How they calm people down. It's a skill, absolutely a skill. And you flip it on them and it's like magic. So I loved it. So I, of course, when I got older, I wanted to do that more. <laughs> I could agree with you more. And I think that the Karens that you speak to when they refer to someone being poor and not having the opportunity, I think that's obviously that's a subliminal message and that's a code for black and brown, which John and I totally debunked that because John and I actually grew up poor as well. And we're two white kids who grew up in New York City. So I don't agree with that. But what John and I talked about, what 
they're lacking some people. I agree with you. It should be upbringing. John and I grew up poor. You could be black, you could be white. It doesn't matter. But we grew up with a sense of community. John's father told him, don't be a jerk. That's so funny, but John said it all the time. My father told me, don't be a jerk off, right? And my father told me, respect for authority. When, when an adult is outside and you're hanging out in the corner, they tell you to go back inside or shut up because they got work the next morning, you better respect them. Why? Because you're a reflection of me. I was a reflection of my father. John was a reflection of his father. So I agree with you. I agree with you. And the ironic part to this is that the NYPD attracts middle class and poor kids. Because usually the rich kids don't want to become cops. They're looking to have a better funding. They already have a generation of income. So I, that is totally debunked as well. I think that poor kids and middle class kids are more attractive to the police department. John, I know you agree. Because the NYPD gives you a benefit package. And it's, it's an opportunity to build wealth. You're not going to be rich, rich, but wealth enough that you, when I, when I mean wealth, happiness, that you could have benefits, you could have a family. Maybe you won't have a 10-bedroom house, but you could have a house. You could have a life. And these, most of the kids that come on the NYPD were poor, you know, and they were white, they were black, they were Asian, but they had an upbringing. I can't agree with, with you more. A sense of community. I say that all the time. We lost that. And I would see it in the police department. We would lock young kids up with illegal firearms. And the mothers and fathers would come in screaming, yell, what did you do to my son? So what? It's a gun. It's bad out here. But there was no sense of community saying, wow, wow, what did my son do? You know, I, I need to talk to my son at home. But it was more about, you know, feeling anger towards the cop. We lost that sense of community. I agree with you. I don't think when we talk about standards that it's a must to have college or must to not have college. But you do need that up upbringing. You need that core to have, you know, that sense of morals and principles. That I agree with you hundred percent, and then we could build into the police department. But there has to be standards of people having morals and principles. And obviously, those five men you said individuals, I have no problem referring to them as thugs. I watched that video. I've said it. I've been adamant about it. They did not move like cops. They were imposters. They were not cops. They were thugs. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with you. I, I agree. And and when I read your statement, Mike, I, I didn't I didn't go right onto the family. But I I do believe in in the value of family, and I do believe you know I do, and and I I didn't take it as that because I always I always reflect back to my father, who was one of the best people I know. His father was dead at ten. He grew up in the projects on the Lower East Side. They didn't have a pot to piss in. His mother, great lady, she was mentally ill, so he didn't have a a, a good upbringing. He went to Vietnam. He served this country, did two tours. He was shot. He came back. People were spitting on him. The guy had every excuse to be a criminal and be angry and hate people and do all these things. And he wasn't. He had that moral compass from somewhere. I don't know if it was his religion. I don't know if it was a mentor. I don't know if it was something he heard somewhere, but there was something in there. And that's what I took from his statement. And it kind of stuck with me. So when I saw all the people attacking him, I'm like, that's right. He didn't mean that. Like, he didn't mean you have to have a great family. No, he meant you have to have a strong moral code. You have to be out here. And, and like what Eric's saying, a sense of community, like and 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 an environment that we came into. And and that's the thing I think that we're losing in in the police department and in our communities as a whole, like. We're not stepping into a culture anymore. We're not this unified culture, and we don't even know what's acceptable and what's not. And 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 th those are the things that that I'm 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 seeing. Like 
I, I just got this video and I didn't show you the video ahead of time. And I just kind of want to share it if you guys don't, or if you guys don't mind. Um, I, this, the video is killing me. I, I'm like, I, I can't even believe what I'm seeing. And it's because I don't know what this cop should do in this situation, honestly. And I don't know how anyone could sit there because whatever the guy does in this situation, it's a captain doing a paid detail. This is the thing. He's doing a paid detail in Target. And these three males, I don't know what the incident happens prior to this, but I just see their approach and their attitude towards it. And I'm not I'm not critiquing the cop at all. I'm saying I, I, I think whatever he does in that situation, he's wrong. And I think that's the problem is like we don't have a culture. If you don't mind, I just want to play. I just want to get your thoughts on it. I just did it. That's why I wasn't paying attention for a second. I pulled it in. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I like I watched that video and I'm like right then and there. If that's my son, I don't care what color his skin is. If that's my son, if that's my nephew, if that's the kid that lives next door to me, I'm like, this kid needs to go to jail for the night and and get and 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 cool off and realize they're not gangsters. Right. But that doesn't happen. If this captain steps in and he locks him up, that automatically is going to go into a violent situation where he's going to either have to deploy his taser, deploy pepper spray, and it's going to be a violent, violent struggle. And we're going to throw the words de-escalation, de-escalation. And these kids are going to get four hours in jail, and we're going to have all sides come in and attack these guys. And I'm like, what is the right thing to do there? And this is the situation these new guys are stepping into. I'm like, I don't even know it. I'm like, I just... Mike, if you don't mind giving your opinion, and then and then Eric, like, I think I think these kids knew exactly what they're doing, right? This captain, whatever's rank, he's he's a lottery ticket. They wanted him to take action. They're filming it. They're waiting for him to do something, right? They're trying to hook him, like an old academy saying. They're trying to hook him. Uh, I don't even know why he engaged him. I mean, if they're committing a crime, get your patrol guys over there, or not just walk away. Why even entertain them? You know they're egging you on. You know they want you to do something. I mean, they're cursing you out. We've all heard that. Take your badge off. You're nothing without that badge. We've heard that a million times. Just, I don't know why you just, just walk away. Walk away. I love to speak on that. I actually, I, I agree with you on some of it, but some of it, I see a different perspective. And this perspective is that he's post at Target. That's exactly his post doing that pay detail. He doesn't have the opportunity to walk away. And he also has to hold a position and show face because he needs to remain safe for the entire night. He also knows that his actions are reflective of the actions that these guys will now take forward with other cops going forward. So I used to give this metaphoric speech to my cops. And I mean this, but it's really unfortunate. I'm going to tell you this. His only choice was to retreat and back down which is really unfortunate because hurting the interactions that these men, these cowards, and I call them cowards, and I told the cowards that they're going to have interactions with cops in the future. 
But this metaphoric speech I used to give to the cops, and I know that my cops that are listening right now is like, damn, we got to hear this again. And I used to say, when you're addressing a crowd, you need to always be on your toes, not on your heels, just as the same way you should be in life. You should always be pushing forward on your toes and not on your heels. Why? That's exactly what they're doing. They're putting this white shirt, I think, Lieutenant or Captain, I, I don't know what he is. He, he says he's a captain. I didn't even know captains do pay detail, do they? That be inspectors do pay detail. Really? Wow. So, so wow. These guys, how much money do you really need? So they put him <laughs> in a position to now, and I see it. You actually watch it. Look at it. What I'm talking about. He's actually in a position where he's on his heels. They're make they're putting him back. They're not actually touching him, but they're playing this psychological game where they put him back on his heels. If they did decide to get physical, it doesn't take much at this point to get him off balance, to get him on the floor and get that gun. And I'm serious when you think about it. As big as he is, he's now on his heels. And if they rush forward, he's going down. You should always be on your toes. He should be pushing forward, but he doesn't have the support. His only option is to retreat. We should always be on our toes in life, not on our heels. And I used to tell that to my cops. But in that situation, it's a lose-lose. And the situation is you either on the left, you're the coward. And if he would have taken action, he would have been the bully. Because he would have called for assistance. And it would have been a violent struggle, as you said. Or maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would just be them screaming and yelling, I want my mommy, and flailing their arms around. And now what's going to happen? That guy looked like he was about 250. He's taking him down. He's probably going to put pressure on his back and chest, which he's not supposed to, because of the diaphragm law. He's in a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose for him, and it's a lose-lose for the entire department. It's a lose-lose for all law enforcement throughout the country. Because that little interaction is a cancer. It spreads to everyone because everyone else sees it. They want to put on social media. Look, look how he antagonized this cop. To them, it doesn't matter about rank. He's a cop. Look how he antagonized this cop, and he did nothing. Now, next time, maybe we can throw a punch. Let's see what we can get away with. And they keep pushing it and pushing it to see what they can get forward. And then what do we have? We have calculated operations. Antifa, BLM is watching this. And when it comes time to riot, they see this. How far you can push with the cops. Why? Because he, he would have taken action. The Civilian Complaint Review Board would have been all over him. These, these reporters that are leftists would say, hey, why did he de-escalate? I mean, the de-escalation could be put them in cuffs. But that requires taking them down to the ground, deploying punches, possibly taser possibly pepper spray, and then Mayor Adams is going to say, he doesn't look good, he's going to be suspended and probably removed of his rank. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, my my personal opinion, all five of them should be locked, oh, however many were there, should be locked up, but he can't do it. He's by himself. No. There's five guys. I He, he kind of has to get out of that situation, but I don't know that he could walk away either, because if you walk away, I don't know that they're not coming. I don't know that either. It's just it's just a lose lose. I I I, I hate to throw the, the discussion off, but it was just bothering me. Somebody sent it to me, and I was like, I was like, this is. I was like, because I don't know what the guy. Because I was like, I don't know what to do. Like normally, I look at a video and I'm like, oh, they should have did this. He should have did that. But I'm like, I I don't know what's right in that situation. I know me personally. I'm gonna try to get myself back and get on the radio and get guys there. That's hundred percent. Well, I can tell you, if you're Eric Dim and you already have eight sets of charges, what do you do in that position? What if this was a very active person? He has uh, accumulated a lot of CCRBs, probably not as much as me. But there you go. That's also on your mind. The right thing to do, and you and I both know it, is get back up, put every one of them in handcuffs. That's the reality. That's the way policing should be. But unfortunately, we're held to some other standard that we don't even know. 
because everyone's going to say what he should not do, but no one knows what to do. We do, but no one wants us to do it. So sorry to sidetrack the conversation with that one, but I just thought I, I had to share that. That was that was wild. You got any more videos, Sean? <laughs> I do. I got one more, but before we do that, I just want to go into what's what's a good what's a what who makes a good cop like. What standards can we not deviate from? Like, what standards can we not lower? You know, I, I, I'm big on, on that you, sh you should allow some criminality in your youth. It shouldn't be recent criminality. I mean, I was arrested two times as a youth, and New York City offered me the, the opportunity to become a New York City police officer. There were minor crimes. I mean, between us two, I, I say that I'm guilty of them because I was in the place. <laughs> But it was really broken windows policing, and I was just there when, when people were doing shit. But, I mean, I always owned up to it. I was like, yeah, I did it. It was me, even though I really didn't. But, but I mean, I, I think we need to allow some criminality in a city, but how much? And then I don't believe we should ever fold on, on, the, on the physical or psychological standards ever. And I, and I, I think they're doing that with, with all three. They're letting a lot of criminality in. They're lowering the physical standards. And even on the psychological evaluations, they are going softer to, to push ahead what's called diversity, which I don't even know what that is and the, the most diversity in the world. Because, <laughs> you know, me and Eric always say, and we both agree on it, is, and I'm sure you would, would too, Mike, is we always say that if you hire the best people organically, the department's going to be diverse. I mean, because you're just going to just get the genetic, you're just going to get the makeup of, of New York City. You know, so so what do you think, Mike? Like what what standards what makes a good cop and what standards do you do you believe that we should hold police officers to? Well, um just a comment on on recruitment. Like when we came on, right? Uh I don't know how big your classes were. My class was twenty one hundred. And I don't know how many people applied for that test, probably fifteen, twenty thousand, right? And you can pick the cream of the crop. You can pick the best people that that did well on that exam. We can't even get 400 in the academy now. So there's no doubt in my mind, they're absolutely just, again, like I said, they're picking the bottom of the barrel. You know, they're just getting what they get. Good enough. Check. Take them in. But uh, as far as standards, yeah, you, uh, I think a, a police officer has to be honest. He has to be brave. He has to care about his community. He's got to care about people. He has to believe that in what he does. He wants to make the city better, right? Um, he has to be fair. Um, you know, he's got, he's got to be able to handle himself, right? He's got to be physically fit. And like you said, I see some of these guys in the academy, you know, I, they I, they took away a lot of standards. A lot of these guys, and I hate to say that, but a lot of them don't look like they can run a mile or two miles, right? Uh, I don't like the way our uniform cops look today. I'm old school. I don't like the knit cap. I don't like the no tie. That's just me. I don't like, I hate to say, it, I don't like the beards, Eric, sorry. You know, I don't like the way they look like garden gnomes. They're, they're standing out there as like, what, what? They don't even look professional. And I think that comes into play. I think a lot of bad guys are not going to respect you if you look like shit. If you look sharp, I think that that's a part of it. That's your your authority figure. You know, when you look sharp, you might get a little bit more respect than when you look disheveled. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, you guys could probably say more things, but yeah, I think those are the qualities. You got to be honest. You got to be, you have to care. You have to, you have to want to do this. You have to want to do this job, right? You shouldn't be doing this job as a paycheck. I know you guys didn't do it to get a paycheck. You guys are passionate about it, right? Uh, you, you, it, you know, I never aspired to be a police officer. It turned out to be a great career, and I loved it. I loved it so much. It's, I stayed 30 years, right? And now I'm, I was encouraging my students to become police officers. Not so much now. But, um, yeah. What do you think, Eric? I'm glad. I really want to ask that question. So, I like to compare it to my experience in the Marine Corps. So when I went to the Marines, I mean, you get all kinds of walks of life. It's from the entire country, right? The Marine Corps is 175,000 strong. And what's what's so amazing about the Marine Corps is that everyone is so proud to be a Marine, and you're held to this standard. And and let me circle back to explain. So some of the Marines that we get, they're from New York. They're from different places in the country. Some guys are intelligent. Some aren't. Uh, but some guys, you know, they have different qualities. But, and that's why I say this is twofold. One, but they all have the desire to be a Marine. They want to be a Marine. That's the most important, the desire to have a life of service. And then it's twofold. The training is adequate. They break you down into nothing and they rebuild you into a Marine. That doesn't happen amongst police departments throughout the country. We need people that have a desire. They don't. I think they have to have potential. My firm belief is you do. You do not have to have all the skills. We should not expect someone to have the skills. That's where the training comes in. But we should have potential. You should have the desire that you want to be a cop. The ultimate mission is to be a cop, and to do all the things police do. And that's helping people. That's making arrests. You should have the desire that you want to be that warrior that goes out and becomes a cop. And then the training has to be so effective that they tear you down and build you up and there's uniformity and you all become this machine. And what's so effective about the Marine Corps, why Marines are so effective is because they teach you from day one is you never let the person down next to you, your, your man or woman to your left or man or woman to the right. And that's why they're so good because you'll do whatever you have to do because the person next to you depends on you. And that's what we have to breed breed in the police departments throughout the country it has to be people with potential that have a desire with adequate training and put those together that's a recipe for good cops and effective police departments it has to be tribal it has to be a family it has to be infectious in a good way to each other that they have that good moral compass together and that's why i always say john good police officers weed out the bad ones when you're when when you have a good department as a whole in that video, we saw five thugs. If that was four good police officers with a moral compass, if one was off base, they would have weeded him out. They would have been infectious to each other to get the bad one out. But unfortunately, we had five bad cops together, which created a gang of thugs. That's what we need. That's my opinion. That's oh, great. I think I think he's a bolt that on. I think the only I think the only problem is like we should be holding people to the highest standards. And we created a culture now in the NYPD where guys like me and you at 18 years old, well, lieutenants, very active guys that came up should be in the leadership roles, you know, mentoring kids doing that. And we created an environment politically, not us as as police officers, 
but politically, politically appointed leadership and the politicians in New York City, New York City Council, New York State Assembly and the governor have created this anti-police pro-criminal legislation, which really has weeded out active cops and 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 destroyed our culture as a whole. So, you know, like Mike brings up a great point. We're not getting anybody, you know, and 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 it's. It's scary, man. It re- it really is, and it's all being done under lies, you know. And like I said, I I, I don't I don't want to ever paint like a bleak bleak picture, but I think really in order to to we we should keep the highest and strictest standards until the culture politically gets changed, until the climate moves change, because we're breeding. We are going to breed corruption. We will see a very bad version of New York City Police Department if we're going to allow any type of criminality, doesn't matter standards, we don't care your psych history. I mean, this is a tough, tough job, man. We need we we need people that are ready to go physically, mentally, emotionally, and people that have exhibited good citizenry like we're we're good members of that community yeah maybe oh john was a little punk kid but he grew up he's a nice kid he brings he shovels my snow he does this he does that you know he's not a bad guy you know this go back to the checks with the neighbors and all that um you know so well, that goes just, back. but uh, john i just want to uh piggyback to what you're saying mike that actually goes to what you're saying when they do the background check and they knock on your neighbor's doors to ask what kind of person you are, that comes up, that's about your upbringing. That's a sense of community. That's your community saying, hey, that's someone that I rely on. You want the neighbor to say, yeah, you know what? If I couldn't carry my groceries and they're too heavy, you know, John or Eric or Mike would help me. That's a yeah. sense of community. That's yeah. that's what we want. I, I agree with what you're saying, Mike. That's part of the upbringing. That doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. That's just helping you, being kind to your neighbor. Uh, uh, can I tell you a quick story? Absolutely. Uh, this is a bad. This is a bad example of a bad cop. So, and talking about upbringing. So, let's just say he 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 he's he did not grow up in an American culture. I'm not going to say race, but me and my old partner John John Hanley, working midnights. Our first thing was to get breakfast or dinner, whatever it is, right? So we go before we get our jobs. We go to this diner, and we got friendly with the guy at the diner. Uh, Ali. And, you know, we noticed that he would bag these bagels. Right. And he would just leave it on the side. And then one day we just asked Ali, I said, Ali, what are you doing with those bagels? It goes, oh, they're like day old bagels. We're just going to chuck them in the dumpster. I said, and, you know, me and John, like it was probably John. He goes, would you mind if we take those bagels? Right. And he goes, and what we what we do with the bagels, we take them to the shelter. Right now, me and John are both raised Catholic and that's just what we do. Right. We're not doing it to make ourselves feel better. It's just a waste. You're throwing away these bagels. Right. So that was our routine. It wasn't always what we did. And and as you know, if I be caught us, you know, that would be corruption. Right. But that's what we did. We took that chance. We're Brooklyn North cops. This guy's going to chuck these bagels. We're going to run them to the shelter. And that's what we did. Not every night. But whenever we went in there to get our food, it wasn't every night. If he had the bagels, we took them. So John got a line of duty injury. So now I had to go work with this this officer that I worked with. And, you know, we went to the diner and Ali goes, Mike, those bagels are ready. I was like, oh, cool. I grab them and let's just call him. I don't know what to call him. What's a good name that's not very uh, positive? Chibo. Chibo. <laughs> yeah. Chibo. <laughs> So Chipo goes, what are, you, what are you doing with those bagels? 
I said, I'm going to run it to the shelter. I'm, you know, that's what we do. We just run over the shelter, give it to the guys. It goes, he goes, I would rather give that to the dogs, right? He actually said that. And this is exactly what we don't want in policing. Would you agree? This is not the kind of person you want. So I said, yeah, whatever. Put the, he's a rookie anyway. I put the bagels in the back. We drive over to 1322 Bedford. And, you know, the, the guy, the homeless guys know us, right? And as you know, if you don't check in to the shelter at a certain time, they're not going to let you in. So these guys are like sleeping at the steps of the armory. They see us and they go, hey, Officer Mike, Officer Mike, what's going on? It goes, where's Officer John? Who's that? I go, that's cheapo, right? <laughs> so he goes, so I, you know, I said, listen, the bagels are in the back. That's how much I knew these guys. The bagels are in the back. Just go get them out of the back. I'm letting this homeless guy go into my RP. You know, my helmet is there, my back. You know, that's how I know this guy. He grabs the, the bagels. And then you see him walk towards the, you know, the population of people that are out there. And you just see him grabbing the bagels. And Chipo sees this. And now he feels, he goes like this to me. He goes, wow, Mike, you really have a heart. You know, I didn't know you were that guy. He didn't know me very well, you know, because I didn't know you were that type of guy, you know. And, and, and I think. I, I, I want to say I, I influence him. Probably not. He's probably watching this. He knows exactly who he is. But uh, yeah, that's a perfect example. I got lots of stories about this guy. If you want me to give you another one, I'll give you another one. But that was just one example. That was something that me and my partner did. Somebody else was introduced to it without, uh, without, without the same values as us. And to him, it was foreign. Right. And I, that's what I don't want in NYPD. I want guys like us, like me and John, you know, that, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. It's not part of the job. You just do it because you want to do it. You know, it's just something you do. It's funny you say that, but the problem with the job now is, and I love that you did that. And I used to do stuff, you know, I used to do kind things. 100%. But now they want you to document it with the, with this craft thing. You document, you know, you, you <laughs> right, John? Sorry, that's what they want you to do. Like, yeah, you, they want you to write does. down. I took the bagels and I brought yeah. them home the shelter. You I guys the lady the <laughs> That's that's your evaluations now are based on. I mean, that's we shouldn't even write that down. I'd be embarrassed to turn my home, but that's just your job being a good person. But now they want you to write down. You know, I donated bagels to the homeless guy. That's crazy, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like writing up for your own medals. It's just insane, you know. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it's like. You want another one? I got yeah, another one. Oh, come on, give me yeah, another. Sure. Same guy. Midnight's. You really so, like this guy. <laughs> well, I, I, I got stuck with him because John's on the TS. So he drops me off to get food. Uh, there's a Chinese spot on Flatbush. Uh, I had to cross the street for whatever reason. He parked on the other side of Flatbush. Now I'm on park. I go to the Chinese restaurant. I'm getting my food. As I'm getting my food, I see somebody, I see like a car pulling up behind Cheapo. And I see these ladies getting out, right? I said, oh, you know, it's midnight. I think it's snowing or raining. It was bad. And I see Cheapo whip the car around. He whips the car around to me to pick me up, which I thought was unusual because he didn't even drop me off in front of the place. But now he's whipping it around. And I go, what's up? What happened? What, what, what do those ladies need? And he goes, uh, oh, they, want, they have a flat and they wanted to know if you have a jack. And I go, do we have a jack? And he goes, I told him no, but I didn't check. I'm like, I said, okay. So I get in the car. I said, all right, pull away because I don't want to embarrass him, right? Even though he needs to be embarrassed. 
I check the car, I check the trunk. We don't have a jack. So I get on the radio. Anybody in the 77 have a jack? And somebody did. I said, meet me on Park and Flatbush. I go, I go, go back to the ladies. And uh, I tell the ladies, I said, ladies, we don't have a jack, but we have a sector coming here with a jack. They pull over. The, the sector gets there. I grab the thing. And I change the tire for these ladies like I would do for my mom, for my sister, for any, you know, maybe not a guy, but for my, for the ladies in the middle of the night, I'm going to change this tire, jack it up and change it, right? And uh, long story short, hugs and, hugs and kisses. Turns out one of the females is a nurse at KCH, Kings County Hospital, and her sister works at the 7-7. And you just don't know who you're going to meet, right? So hugs and kisses, nothing for a while. He didn't care about uh, uh, Cheapo. I just slipped his name in there. <laughs> but the next day, the next day, uh, the police officer, Roxanne, she sees me and she goes, hey, Mike, I, I heard you took care of my sister last night and, and Cheapo didn't do shit. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that, yeah, he didn't do shit. So, yeah, just uh, everyday values that we bring into policing. And that's the bad thing, right? Because the news never shows that. All the good things, all the small good things that police officers do daily. And we never see that. We only see the bad. And that's all that's pushed through the media, all the negativity. So, of course, everybody thinks that. Just like when we work in a shithole and we see all the bad guys, we lock up criminal after criminal after criminal. Sometimes we get jaded. We start thinking all these people are criminals. That's how they're they're portraying us now. Now the public seeing us as old pieces of shit that beat the crap out of people, and that's just not the case. That's just not the case. Well, that's what we're losing. We're losing a sense of community. No, that's a great story. I mean, and and regardless the fact whether her she turned out to be a nurse or uh, the 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 the, uh, the sister of a cop, would it really have mattered? It's just another interaction with the community. It's somebody you're going to see again. Oh, that was that cop that helped me out one time. Or maybe 100%. she had bad interaction with police for whatever bad time in her life we were there, whether it was our fault or not. You know, people just relate us to a lot of bad situations. You know, we're not firemen. We go to a lot of bad situations where, you know, we, we're, we're going to be remembered as the bad guy, even when we really weren't, even when we really didn't do anything wrong. But you might have just you might have just threw that in our head like, ah, you know what? They're not all bad guys. You know, so they're, they're, it, different scenario. It's a, it's a moment that we could go. And, and, and I'm sure if it was a guy, you would you probably wouldn't change the tire for him. But here's a jack, bro. I'll get you 100 percent. You know, 100 uh, percent. And how many times have we interacted with the public and they're expecting us to be something? And then it turns out we're not like that. We are pretty good. We are helpful. You know, we've had thousands of interaction like that. So we're, I think we're changing people. You know, I mean, the media is influencing them. Social media is influencing them. But I think the cops just got to do what they got to do and be who they are. And, and, and you know, we, we'll write this shit. I agree. I agree. If we could beat the media narrative and the political narrative, because I always said even even during the George Floyd riots and all that, when they were talking about Michael Brown incident, the Eric Garner incident, when they're talking about a rift in the black community with the NYPD, I'm like, that's a lie. I was like, that's not true. I was like, there's a rift with criminals in the NYPD. There's a rift in every community, black criminals, Italian criminals, Chinese criminals, Jewish criminals. Those people don't like the police and they never will. And they shouldn't. We're, we're polar opposites. You know, um, it's where we're going out. Of course, they're going to try to paint us in a bad light. But uh, I think, you know, I think we could. I think you're right. I think if we if we really defeat that narrative of, you know what, the community really does 
want the police. The majority of people in New York City respect the police, love the police. I think the main problem we're having right now is with the youth because they don't know any better. They haven't experienced all these other things. They only know what they're hearing on TV, what they're seeing on social media and all this stuff. And I think that's the real battleground that police have going forward is, is getting the correct message into the mind of the youth. And, and that's what we need to do. And that's, you know, that's why we, we want to have shows like this. And we, we, you know, me and Eric, you know, and you, you should join us that we've been going to the, we just started going to the CCRB uh, monthly meeting, like when the kids are there and speak on behalf of the police department, because nobody's ever been there. None of the unions, we don't have police department representation. And just, you know, we're, we're not all out here. Like there are incidents when you got to take some personal responsibility too. And, and everyone's, I like the same way my father told me, my father didn't like the police. Same way my father told me to be respectful. You know, he was basically telling me I'm responsible for that scenario as well. And that's the, the message I think we need to, to bring to our youth. You know, Mike, if you don't mind, I don't want to keep you all night. We, we already, we already went an hour and 20, but uh, I'd like to just, I'd like to just show a, a, a video and just get your thoughts on it. You and you and Eric's thoughts will go around with it. If you don't mind. Yeah. All right. Now you don't understand how are they going to keep crime down in the black community and at the same time not be tough and rough. Well, they do it the same way they do it on the white side of Memphis and they keep the crime down without being rough and tough. How do you have the same department that can keep crime down on one side of town? without beating folk to death. But you can't do it on the other side of town unless you feel that you can get away with it there. I can't speak for everybody in Memphis. I can't speak for everybody gathering. But for me, I believe if that man had been white, you wouldn't have beat him like that that night. Mike, what do you, what do you think about what... Uh... I'm not even going to call him a reverend. What do you think about what Al Sharpton said? Well, Al Sharpton has a long history with the NYPD. We all know he's just an opportunist. Uh, he's taking the limelight again. Uh, and again, he's pushing a false narrative. Um, you know, crime happens and police deal with it. These weren't police officers. I don't know what he's arguing about. These were not police officers. You know, there were, there were gang members that, that, that slipped through the cracks. Uh, yeah, and the reality is, and I always tell my, I talk to my students, you know, crime is, uh, police officers are deployed where crime happens. And the reality is poverty sucks. Unfortunately, where poverty is, that's where crime occurs. And that's where we're deployed. Uh, so he's talking about this side and that side. There's more police officers here because of the crime that's happening there. That's why we have to deal with it. Um, you know, I, I again, you, you guys could probably speak, but I, he, he just, he, you know, he, it's, 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 a, I, he's just trying to get people angry for, for no reason. I mean, I don't even think this fits his narrative. God forbid it was white officers. Oh my God. He, he'd be on everything, you know? So I, I don't even know how he's pushing this. Uh, uh, again, he's just an opportunist. Eric, what about you? What do you, what do you think about the video? Listen, I don't like picking on people. I mean, this is this is professional when we talk about opinions. But before I go ahead, is there any way to freeze frame the profile? Because 
the size of his head compared to his body was amazing. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> it looked like a bobblehead. His head is, it was like half his body. <laughs> if we get an opportunity, we got to freeze frame this. <laughs> we really do. But I watched that, and I had to watch it several times, and I had to tweet out. It's so sad that, I mean, he, he himself, along with the chief and these other administrations throughout the country that have, I mean, they're consorting together to try to find any narrative, any way they can to spin this into a race issue in which he's doing. He's inciting violence. There's subliminal messages. I wrote an article recently in the Manhattan. If you can refer to it, it's exactly what I say in the article is that this is cinema. It's, it's, it's theatrical presentation. It, it really is. It's subliminal messages. It's inciting violence. I mean, it really is. It's influential to his, his, his viewers, I mean, about this race issue that does not even exist. That, if anything, why are we not stepping back and saying, listen, we have to figure out, you know, how we get the best police in the police department. And if you want to support the black community and say, hey, listen, we need to hire the best in our black community. These black men were thugs. I don't want these type of black men hurting good black men in our community. But of course, he's going to spin this and say, you know, on the left side of town, it's okay, and the right side. But hey, which, which part of town does Al Sharpton live in? Because I'm pretty sure he doesn't live on the side of the town that he speaks for. I'm pretty mm. sure he lives on the other side of town. So, I mean, he he goes against everything that he preaches. It's just it's totally irresponsible that he's he's inciting violence and he's lighting a match just as the chief did from Memphis. It's tragic. It's it. it it's sad to hear that he's doing this. I mean, we should be mainly trying to fix the problem, not by putting more gasoline into it and gaslighting everybody and make them believe that there's some race, race issue here that just does not exist. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you're 100% right. He's throwing flames on the fire because this is how he makes money. You know, I, I don't think I ever said it on the air, but I said it offline to Mike before you jumped in because you were late to him. And then... Uh, <laughs> And I've, numerous times, I've been saying numerous times since I'm a child because I've witnessed him since I'm eight years old. And I said it numerous times. I said he actually gets happy when he sees black youth die at the hands of the police. He's not looking for a solution. You're 100% right. He's looking to create even more problems because that's what he's going to do. He's going to profit off of death. Uh, miserable person. That was a miserable statement. I hope nobody buys into what he's saying. I hope everybody sees what he is um so mike i just want to give you two questions we ask actually three i got for you but two questions we ask all our retired guys everybody that comes on that's retired um at the time you came in the police department would you do it all over again at the time i came on yes. yeah a hundred percent i would absolutely do it again a hundred percent yes and then the other question we always ask is Right now, you're 21 years old. Would you come on the NYPD? No. I mean, I, th no. I think I don't think I, I. Everyone has answered this question exactly the same. We feel the same way. Um, Eric, you got any questions before I, I let Mike finish this off? No, 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 Mike. Thank you for coming on. 
you've been very insightful. Uh, I think you definitely gave some great points and we always appreciate when someone comes on and has, you know, an open mind and perspective and your perspective. It doesn't have to always agree or disagree with what we're saying, but your perspective is so important. Thank you for your insight. I have no questions. Thank you. Yeah, Mike. And uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate you taking time with us. I know you only get the the five second media clips where they're like, go, you know, you've got two minutes to say it all, break down this whole situation for me. You know, you know what it is? And I'm sure you guys have done this too. You do the media, you do the news, and you talk to them for like 20 minutes, sometimes longer. And if it's a savvy reporter, he'll say him, he'll restate what you said because it's so good. And I, I said, I said that. He didn't let me say it. On, you know, he's restated. Like, all right. That's and then they'll give me like the five seconds. I was like, all right. That's why they want your statement before you go on, so that they can steal it. <laughs> that's why. That's why I love. I love the live. I love the live because I can just yeah. say whatever I want. Yeah, so. yeah, no, it's great. Well, Mike, if you don't mind, if you could just, uh, if you could just end us off, if you could leave us with uh, words of wisdom, message to the youth, anything you want to talk about, you know, floor's yours. If any of my students are watching uh, that are now police officers, stay safe, make boss, have a great career, uh, and make your family proud. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the great and powerful Michael Alcazar. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, boys. Mike, thank you. Yes, sir.